0: There is nothing that is so unnatural about life than death. And this is most especially true in the case of a child who has died as a result of a terminated pregnancy. It can therefore be hard to know in moments like these how to interpret the meaning of these events. And it's with this in mind that I'd like to turn our attention this morning to the words of David in Psalm 8. David, incidentally, is a man who is familiar with the emotions and the suffering that can occur when one loses a child prematurely. He himself experienced the death of his own infant son in 2 Samuel 12. And so while we cannot know when David wrote this psalm, and while he doesn't appear to have written it to commemorate that event, we can yet know that these words come from the heart of a man who understands the kind of sorrow that we're experiencing here this morning. He writes to the choir master according to the Getith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, There are so many questions that uh, that we ask in the wake of a miscarriage. But if you're anything like me, then I think one of the major questions, perhaps even the main question that you ask in the face of a tragedy such as this is where is God in all of this? Does does he not see what's happening here? Or does he not care? After all, we know that the same God who created the heavens and the earth simply by the power of His Word could surely have prevented the premature death of a little 12-ounce child, right? Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to have saved Peter, nor is his ear so dull that he could not hear the prayers we lifted up to him earlier this week. So where is he? How are we to interpret the outcome of these events? Are we to go away thinking that perhaps God simply does not care? Is the answer maybe that God didn't see the life of this child as very important? Or are we to think that maybe God simply has other, more pressing matters to attend to than to care about the life of a little unborn child? It's this same type of question that David seems to be pondering in Psalm 8 when he writes in verses 3 to 4, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? I think it's probably hard for us to fully relate to the line of questioning that David is going through here. After all, we live in a pretty modernized society. We live in the age of air conditioning, indoor plumbing, and the electric light. I'd venture to say that not only do most of you live in cities or in towns, but even those of you who do live in the country probably spend most of your evenings indoors. Not David, though. David was originally a shepherd, which meant he spent a lot of evenings outside guarding the sheep. He also spent years in the wilderness as he fled from King Saul, and he frequently spent many sleepless nights awake and watching for Saul's men. And in the Psalms, we learn that David would often spend those night watches looking up at the stars and meditating on the goodness of God and asking himself, Where is God right now? Does he see or does he care? Again, you may not get the full sense of what David is marveling at here, because I doubt you probably ever really look up at the night sky anymore. And when you do, I'd imagine that most of the time you're looking up at it at a time when most of the stars are washed out by the surrounding streetlights. But I'd imagine that at some point in your life, you've been in a place that's been truly dark, dark enough that you've really seen the stars. In fact, if you're anything like me, then I'd imagine that you may have even been awestruck and surprised by just how many stars there are up there in the night sky because you had never really seen them before. Well, that's what David is looking at in this passage. And as he sits there gazing up at the majesty of the heavens, he feels very small. In case you haven't noticed, the universe is a very big place. And it seems as if it's only getting bigger every day. Every year we learn more and more of just how many billions of stars there are in the galaxy and of how many billions of galaxies there are beyond that. We learn of stars thousands of times bigger than our own sun and of the hundreds of planets that we're discovering circle these stars. More and more, we seem to learn that we're nothing but a little speck of dust riding a slightly larger speck of dust circling a relatively unremarkable star in an incomprehensibly vast and diverse universe. Now, David doesn't understand all of that. But as he looks up at the beauty and grandeur of the night sky, he can feel it. He sees it all and it makes him realize he's just a speck. And so he wonders, verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The way David phrases this question, it's interesting because it seems to speak not just to the insignificance of man, but even to the frailty of our lives. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Do you hear that? This question is generational in nature, and it would seem that David is alluding to the fact that not just are we very small, but our lives are also very brief. In Psalm 39, verse 5, David writes, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Psalm 78 compares our life to a wind that passes and comes not again. The fact is, whether a person lives to be a hundred or whether they only live 20 weeks in the womb, like Peter, when you set that against the backdrop of eternity, it becomes apparent that we are all here for only a few moments and then we're gone. As David looks up at the night sky, he senses that. He feels the smallness and frailty of human life, and there's a sense in which he wonders, does God see and does He care? Once again, this is the same type of question that we tend to ask in the wake of a miscarriage. It's been said that anywhere from 10 to 25% of all pregnancies will end in a miscarriage before the 20th week. This doesn't include those children like Peter who are stillborn or prematurely born after the 20th week and unable to survive. That's a lot of children who are conceived and then die prematurely. In fact, I'd gather if we were to go around this room today, we'd discover that many of you sitting here have had an experience like what the Rileys are going through here this morning. You know what it's like to lose a child in miscarriage because miscarriages are unfortunately far too common. So what's going on here? Does, does God not care about these little children? David tells us the answer in verses 5 through 8. As he ponders the majesty of the heavens and the insignificant of mankind, he says regarding mankind, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and honor. You have given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. You see, as David attempts to understand mankind's relationship with this vast and majestic universe, his thoughts take him back to Genesis 1 where God creates the heaven and earth in six days, and then on the sixth day and final day of creation, God creates His crowning achievement. And that's mankind. Describing this event, Genesis one to 26-28 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Essentially, what Genesis says is that not only did God create the heavens and the earth, but at the end of it all, He created man. And the reason He created man was to rule over the creation on His behalf. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. It means that we are made as His representation on the earth. We are created to rule on His behalf, in His likeness. As a manifestation of the glory of God to the rest of the earth. And this is what David is struggling to understand back in verses 3 to 4. The thing that he's wrestling with in verses 3 to 4 is really not so much whether or not God cares. He knows God does, but what he doesn't understand is why. Genesis 1 indicates. That while, yes, the heavens do declare the glory of God, that's not the aspect of the creation that's truly majestic. That's not the part of the creation that's truly valuable. That's not the part of the creation that truly manifests the glory of God in its fullest and most complete form. Rather, mankind is. Genesis One says that God created us to manifest His glory to the moon and to the stars. And David just can't seem to understand how that works. How can we be the most precious and valuable thing in this creation? How can you look up at the heavens and see the beauty that's inscribed there and then consider that God says, yeah, that's pretty neat. Have you considered what I've done over here? Have you considered what I've done in little Peter? So, do you think God cares about Peter Riley? You better believe he cares. He cares immensely, not only about Peter, but for all the other unborn and premature babies who die every year. Because what Scripture says is that Peter, along with all these other babies, he was made in God's own image, and he was made, along with all of us, to rule the earth on God's behalf. Genesis 1 tells us that in the divine order of things, Peter was created to be a prince, along with all the rest of mankind. This is why I said at the beginning of this morning's message that death is perhaps the most unnatural thing about life and most especially the death of a premature child. Peter wasn't created to die. You and I were not created to die. We were made to have dominion and declare the glory of God to this creation. And when we were created, God not only gave us this mandate, but He specifically blessed us and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Listen, miscarriages aren't supposed to happen. Premature babies were not an original part of God's design. God created life. Death is unnatural. Well, if that's the case, then why is there such a thing as death, right? We don't find the answer to that question here in Psalm 8. Instead, we find it in Genesis 2 and 3. I'd imagine the story is familiar enough that I don't even really need to go into detail to explain it. God places man in the Garden of Eden. He tells him he can eat of every tree in the Garden save for the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil. And he explains that the reason for this restriction is because on the day man eats of that tree, he will die. However, mankind disobeys. The serpent comes and deceives Eve. She eats of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She gives the fruit to her husband Adam. He also eats. And death enters into the world. In fact, not only does death enter into the world, but miscarriages and premature babies. This fleshes itself out in Genesis 3.16 when God tells Eve, that as a result of her sin, she will have pain in childbearing, and in pain she shall bring forth children. So you see, the tragedy that we've seen unfold this week isn't due to God's failure to love us. It's due to our failure to love Him. It isn't God who's unfaithful. We are. God made us as kings and queens to reflect His glory, but rather than receive that gift, we've despised our birthright and abdicated our throne with our sin. God didn't create us this way. And so you see, there's a sense in which just as Trevin and Kaylee could hold Peter in their arms this past Tuesday and and grieve over the tragedy of what they've lost, lost, so too can God look down at mankind and all the pain that's entered into the world as a result of our sin and grieve over the death of His children. And just to be clear here, I'm not just being sentimental. After all, when Jesus went to visit the tomb of His friend Lazarus, and when He witnessed the outpouring of sorrow that He saw there, the Scripture tells us that He wept. Again, God does care. He mourns the death of His children just the same as us. The only difference, though, is that He can do something about it. And this is where we have reason to hope this morning, because you see, our Father can do remarkable things. I've said that we live in a pretty modernized society. Well, with all the scientific progress we've made, we can do some pretty remarkable things. You take the field of medical technology, for instance, and there are some things that we can do today which you might describe as modern miracles. Cancers and other terminal diseases can be healed. Some of the paralyzed are able to receive feeling back into their arms and legs. Even some of the deaf, to a certain degree, can receive their hearing back. It's amazing what doctors can do today. And yet, as great as modern medicine is, And as blessed as we are to have men and women in the medical profession who work very hard to perform these modern miracles, there is yet not one man on this earth who could have stopped Peter from being born on Tuesday morning. And there is yet not one man on this earth who could have stopped him from dying during the delivery process. And there is most certainly not one man on this earth who could bring him back to life today. And so if Peter's story ended there, then we could all, all we could do this morning is grieve. Because it would mean that Peter is simply gone. And there's simply nothing more that we can say or do about it. The good news, however, is that Peter's story is not over. And the reason it's not over is because we serve a God who not only cares, but who is also able to do what no human doctor can do, and that's bring the dead back to life. We see this hope begin to bear itself out in Genesis 3.15 when at the very moment that God is pronouncing the curses that will fall upon mankind as a result of their sin, He also says this to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Essentially, God tells the serpent that another offspring is coming and this offspring is going to do what Adam wouldn't do. He's going to obey and obey perfectly. And as a result of this perfect obedience, God will grant this individual the kind of authority that Adam was meant to have. He, he will crush even the serpent who first tempted mankind into our rebellion against God. And, and do you know what the implication is here? Do you know what this means It means that when this person comes, they will claim victory. Not only over Satan, but even over death itself. And so who is this individual? Of course, it's none other than Jesus. No merely human person has ever been able to provide this sort of perfect obedience. And so God the Son Himself, Jesus Christ, came to earth and took on human flesh in order to to provide the obedience that you and I cannot provide. And He did this so that He could offer Himself up as a sacrifice for sin in our place. He went to the cross, bled and died for us to suffer the punishment that we deserve for our sin for us. And he did this so that he might conquer death on behalf of the rest of mankind and offer eternal life to everyone who simply comes to him and asks. This is what Christ's resurrection from the dead demonstrates. It demonstrates that he is the one who's received all authority. He is the one who's conquered death. And so now all that we must do to receive eternal life is repent of our rebellion against God, turn to Jesus Christ in faith, and simply ask that he would grant us eternal life. He's done all the work for us. Death has already been conquered through the perfect obedience and sinless sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus has done what no other person could do. And that, ladies and gentlemen, that is the degree to which our Father cares about death. That is the degree to which He cares about little Peter. He sees this creation that He's made, this creation that He made to bear His image, and He cares for them enough that He would send His only Son to die so that they might receive eternal life. You see, our God is not unacquainted with the sort of grief that we're going through this morning. He knows what it's like to have a son die. The only difference is that He experienced it willingly, voluntarily, because He cares for us. Because he wants to see these men and women made in his image, raised again to eternal life. So someone may ask, where was God on Tuesday? I'll tell you where God was. He was at the cross, giving the life of his very own son so that we, so that Peter, might have eternal life. And this means that of all the questions that we may be asking this morning, and I recognize that there are still many questions, more than I could ever hope to answer in the time we have right here, but really, of all the questions that we might ask this morning, the one question that we should be asking more than any other is, what should we do in light of the fact that that we serve such a great and magnificent God? And the answer is to praise Him, to give Him glory for His kindness and mercy to us. We give thanks. And yes, there is much to give thanks for. We can give thanks, for instance, that God created Peter. We may not have known Peter very long. In fact, none of us really knew him at all. And yet we can give thanks that God still created Peter, that He chose to set His image on Peter so that Peter might magnify His glory here on earth. His life may have been very short here on this earth, and yet at the same time, God still granted him life. And for that we can be thankful. In addition to that, we can be thankful at the realization that this life, while very short-lived on this earth, will yet extend into eternity in the blessing and presence of God. You see, I haven't spent a lot of time here explaining that part of the equation this morning, but the Riley's hope and confidence today is that Peter is now in the arms of the Lord, and that when the Lord returns, Peter will be raised to everlasting life. Again, that's possible because of Christ's death and resurrection. For that, we can be grateful. It's interesting, you go back to Psalm 8. And at the very beginning of that psalm, David says, verse 2, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. It's kind of a confusing verse, the way that's stated. Well, in explaining that verse, renowned commentator Matthew Henry says this. He says, "...the care God takes of little children when they first come into the world, the most helpless of all animals, the special protection they are under, and the provision nature has made for them ought to be acknowledged by every one of us to the glory of God as a great instance of His power and greatness." You see, this is what David is asking when he says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? He's speaking in recognition of the fact that God does care even for the little babies. And in verse 2, the idea is that this providential care has been given in order to silence the accusations of God's enemies, to confound them in their efforts to rebel against his goodness and grace. God's provision, even for the most helpless of His creatures, the infant child, should provoke repentance and praise. And so we find David both beginning and ending this psalm with the exact same refrain. He says, O O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! We might not have been able to see God's provision for Peter through the preservation of his earthly life this week. But the Gospel tells us the story of how God has provided for Peter in the preservation of his eternal life. And so for that this morning, we can give God praise. As I've met with Trevin and Kaylee over the past week, that's been the consistent refrain of their life as well. Just as David begins and ends this psalm praising God for his care for his children, so too have they continually praised God for the blessings that they've been given in young Peter. When Trevin texted me shortly after Peter's passing, the first thing I asked him was, How are you guys feeling right now? And his reply was simply, Hurting and grateful. Yes, they've experienced sorrow over their loss, and yet they're still grateful for the many blessings and mercies that God has shared with them this week. And they've continually expressed their desire to see God glorified for His kindness and grace throughout this process. They grieve the loss of their son as they should, because again, this is not natural, this should not happen, and yet they also rejoice in the hope that they've received in Christ, which has carried them through this tragedy. In fact, it's because of this hope that they even chose to name their child after the very first apostle to bear witness to it. The apostle upon whom Christ started to first build His church through His faithful testimony, and that's the apostle Peter. The Rileys have made it known that they want Peter's life, however brief, to bear witness to the goodness and grace of their God and of the hope that they have because of that goodness and grace. And so we're going to close this morning by praising God for His goodness and grace. With Him, 447, It is well with my soul. Please stand with me as we sing.